This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to, if I could, encourage you to pray uh, for me this next week. On Tuesday, I will be speaking at uh, a conference called the Master Academy International uh, Conference. It's a a pre-conference for the Shepherds Conference, and I'll be uh, speaking on missions. And so the opportunity to challenge, uh, or uh, I don't know for sure how many. I I did it a couple years ago, and I think there were probably 500 to 750 or so. And they actually moved it out of that venue to a larger one, so I'm assuming they're, they're thinking it'll be more than that. And it's a great opportunity to, to challenge folks. And uh, actually going to be from uh, part of this passage. And it's, uh, it actually dovetailed nicely with some things going on here. Uh, but a part of the point of it is that I think uh, a weak ecclesiology has adversely affected our missiology. And, and so I'm going to be zeroing in on that part of it. And so uh, I think it's an important, uh, important biblical truth that could help churches and, and the cause of missions. So that would be the primary reason why I'd ask you to pray. Obviously, it's a great opportunity uh, for exposure for our seminaries as well, uh, because there's a very, con- I think it's uh, from the most conservative wing of of evangelicalism and and then as well fundamentalists that would be there so uh, like-minded brothers potentially that might be looking for a seminary and and so um, so in that regard I pray that'd be a good opportunity for for contacts for us as well I had a really encouraging uh, let me get to Texas second really encouraging weekend this last weekend seeing uh, some folks who've graduated from here it seems like I didn't think it was as long ago as it was but I was actually talking with Eric Leonard at dinner and, and uh, realized he's my wife's age. So it means while I was teaching him in seminary, I was only four years older than him. And and uh, so that's how long ago it was uh, that they were students, Eric and Tom and Kirk. And then Daniel Davey actually was a PHM student before I was here. Uh, and they actually were having a conversation, and one of their other faculty members was uh, mentored in his Ph.D. process by another graduate of ours who now has gone to be with the Lord, uh, uh, Dr. Decker. But it was just, it, it was a reminder to me of how graciously God has used this seminary uh, to prepare and equip people for a variety of ministries uh, in, and I think uh, strengthening, uh, strengthening the, the church uh, by, by pastoring, by training pastors, and so uh, I'm a, I'm an alum, right? So I say this, I uh, say this not just from a staff side of it. Uh, I hope you appreciate the gift that God has supplied for you uh, to receive the kind of education you're getting. That you you do value it because I think sometimes because we do not have the marketing arm of the big boys, nor the sort of celebrity um, surroundings of it. It can it can sometimes just sort of prejudice the mind in ways that that don't value that when you really get to the goods, you guys are getting an excellent education, 
and and in a right kind of context, I think a, a local church context. So, I hope you uh, I hope you you treasure it. You take the most full advantage of it you possibly can, and uh, and in some senses that you become a raving fan of it, uh, so that you uh, you you actually um, I think legitimately uh, take advantage of of the the opportunity God's given you for it. Look at you at First Corinthians chapter three. I'm going to read uh, longer than the text I'm actually going to look in on. But I want to I want to have the context, the background. Obviously, uh, I think you might be familiar with the fact that uh, the church at Corinth um, was was divided. Paul began addressing that in chapter one. He's really been working his way through that, even though there's the broader list of banners. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. By the time you're coming into three and four, you're starting to see that the real conflict is a Paul and Apollos issue because he sort of sets the other two aside and actually comes out and says in chapter 4, I've applied these things to Paul, uh, Apollos and me, because that really seems to be uh, the point of conflict. And to be clear, it's really not a conflict between Paul and Apollos. It's, it's like often is the case, people who have an agenda have picked a highly visible poster bearer for them and are using them in ways that I think are not actually consistent with them. And that's what a part of what Paul is beginning to address here, if you look at beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So you can see in 5 through 9 that Paul, uh, Paul really sort of lays a, an axe to the root of any conflict between groups who are claiming Apollos and Paul because he, he says, uh, God's ministers aren't the issue. It's actually God who is the one who provides the growth. And in fact, they have an accountability based only on their assignment. So God's given Paul something to do. He's given Apollo something to do. And they're accountable for their assignment. They're not accountable for the other person's assignment. And he even says that they are one. They, they actually are united 
in their effort to carry out God's purpose. So, so this foolish exaltation of, of servants is contrary to the work of God. My point that I want to move us toward is to see, and, and if you've had philosophy of ministry, you've heard me hit this point, that I believe this passage is not actually when it's using planting and watering, talking about evangelism. It's actually talking about church planting. Uh, if you want to use the harvest, sowing seed harvest thing, go to John 4, because it, it is taught there. Here, he's actually talking about the planting of the church. And we know that because look at how he concludes verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So 5 through 9, he's been using an agricultural metaphor. And then he introduces at the beginning of verse 9 an architectural one. And so look what he then does there. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So if you're tracing through Paul's argument, what he's doing is this. In the, in the using the field analogy, his role was to be a planter. Someone else came along and watered, but it was God who was giving the harvest. When he shifts to the building analogy, he says, my task was to lay a foundation. Now someone else is building on it. But then he'll come back and say, it's, but it's God's temple. It's his building, just like you're God's building, you're God's field. So, so he's really talking about what his ministry was at Corinth, which was the establishment through the gospel of the church at Corinth. He, he actually uh, did see people come to trust Christ, which the, the evangelism analogy would break down because you know, we always use that as you know, someone plants, someone waters, but then God gives the increase. And we, t- we treat it as somewhat chronological. And Paul would be saying, if that's the case, that no one came to Christ through his ministry. And we know he doesn't mean that because in chapter 4, he says, you, have, you may have many teachers, but you have one father through the gospel. So he has acknowledged that God used him as the instrument through whom people came to Christ. In fact, he says the very same thing, right, in verse 5, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So. So it just it doesn't work to be an evangelism analogy or metaphor. It is actually what Paul saw as his ministry at Corinth was to plant the church through the preaching of the gospel, formation of the believers into an assembly, as we see him do in the book of Acts, and help them establish spiritual leadership in place. That was laying a foundation. That's also a metaphor he uses in Romans chapter 15, when he talks about not having any more work in the area from Jerusalem to Illyricum because he wanted to go where no one had laid a foundation. So Paul's mission, if I could put it this way, was church-centered. He was concentrating on the establishment of the church. And in the context, that clearly is the local church. He's not talking about his mission was to expand the universal church or to advance the kingdom. That's not what he's talking about in this kind of a context. He's actually talking about uh, the, the work of God to call to people for his name, uh, seeing them identify with Christ through baptism, and then teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's exactly what the disciples were commissioned to do. All right, now my particular point for our attention, because if you recall, you may not, that uh, my theme for this year's chapel is I'm trying to focus on leadership issues. 
And, and just to be clear on that, I mean, I, I was going back over in previous series, I've actually preached through all the passages that were specifically related to pastors, right? So when I'm talking about leadership now, I'm actually talking about the general, more broad concept of leadership. And we've talked about things about, you know, having, uh, having discernment, having the kind of character you need to have people's credibility, you know, trust and credibility. In this particular case, what I would like to focus on is uh, what Paul says in verse 10 and 11, right? When he says, someone else is building upon it, let each take care how he builds upon it. So, so he's talking about those who are now engaging in the work of building up the church. And I think, therefore, he's probably targeting more specifically the leaders in the assemblies rather than just individual Christians, though it would have, I think, legitimate application to it. And the reason I say that is often, um, at least most often, what I've heard, verses 12 and following preached, is, is to Christians about how they live their lives, right? You don't, you want to have gold, silver, and precious stones, not wood, hay, and stubble. I always thought Wood Hayden Silver would be a great contemporary Christian music group. You know, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be a great, you know. You got Rolling Stones, you got Wood Hay and Straw. I mean, but whatever. Anyway, that's why I'm not a marketer or promoter for them. Uh, the reality of it is, it's, it has extension to that because every believer has been gifted by the Lord to fill out and complete the work of the body. So, in, in some ways, Every Christian is building on that foundation, right? So I, I don't want to put a hard dichotomy between that and this. I think, though, this is talking about the kind of leadership uh, that's, that's being exercised. Is it consistent with the foundation, right? That's, that's his point. The foundation has been laid, which is Jesus Christ, and you need to build on it in a way which is consistent to, with that. And in fact, I think the easiest way to think about the difference between wood, hay, and straw, and gold, silver, and precious stones, is actually to think about what he said up to this point in the book. Because I mean, if you turn it into this kind of a question, how, how does, or what does building with wood, hay, and straw look like? I think you could actually look at all the things he's been confronting and find the answer to that. Because that's why he's writing. He's challenging them not, in fact, to pursue approaches to ministry which are inconsistent with the foundation that's been laid. And and so, uh, obviously, I'm doing this in form of a survey for us, but I think if you go back in the in the book and start to work your way out, I would suggest several ways in which you might have a wood, hay, and straw ministry, or contrary-wise, be certain that you're, you're building with gold, silver, and precious stones. I think verses 18 to 31 of chapter 1, I, w- I, I think I could uh, say it this way. Uh, if you want to build with wood, hay, and straw, then build with a message that compromises the gospel or accommodates man's pride. Right? Because that's the first point of confrontation that he has with them, that there were people who were wanting to turn away from the offensive message of the cross to apparently some type of more sophisticated message 
that would be more attractive within the philosophical ranks of, of the Greeks or less offensive to the Jews than a crucified Messiah. And so, so Paul has to confront that and say, no, this is actually the, the thing that God has appointed and chosen by which he will save people. And, and so he's, he's uh, challenging them on the very basis, particularly 18 to 25, of their message and, and turning away from what God has chosen to actually demonstrate his power and wisdom. And, and I think that, um, I don't think it's hard to find in our day people who think that they're a little bit shrewder than God is and, and treat the message of Christianity as something of, of a kind of Plato that can be configured into ways that make it more attractive or acceptable to people. Downplay things that are offensive, highlight the things that are attractive. Right, so, and I've said this before, I can't remember if I've said it in this specific context of chapel, but, but I believe that, that at least the last, you know, 50 to 60 years, um, you know, getting close, I guess, to 70, let's say from the post-World War II up to this point, that it's just been, it's just been a succession of what, what is attractive to Americans, right? So, so in the, the heyday of the baby boom, right, when, when the baby boomers were being boomed, <laughs> right, it was it was to present the gospel as the way to accomplish the American dream and have the perfect American family. And and so the framing uh, of a lot of churches to their culture to the culture around us and gospel presentations were in in one form or another some kind of Americana. Right? That that and that's why I think we're still we're still uh, reaping the fruit of that intertwining of of uh, cultural Americana and the gospel, right? That 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 people think wrongly about that, and and so you have that. Uh, then then as the baby boomers became adults and made their way, it is not surprising that uh, the 1970s. Um, really sort of identified as the the me decade right that 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 rising out of that two baby boomers would lead uh, a massive movement of gospel presentation that was designed on personal fulfillment right Rick Warren purpose driven life uh, if you look at um, there's a, a book guy by a guy named Pritchard that analyzes Willow Creek. Uh, it was written as a doctoral project. Essentially trails their message down, essentially down to personal fulfillment. And both of those guys, not surprisingly, would trace a lot of their influence to Norman Vincent Peale, who in the 50s was the positive thinking guru and, and actually, I should say they'd more directly because Norman Vincent Peale was the guy who provoked Robert Schuller 
of the Crystal Cathedral, and and Hybels and uh, Warren would both say that their church growth thinking was forged by attending Robert Schuller's Institute for Church Growth. Right. So so essentially, you have you have uh, an apostate fully Norman Vincent Peale in all probability with Robert Schuller even though a lot of people don't realize he was ordained, I think, in the Christian Reformed Church of America, or he's a, or Reformed Church of America. I always get the way they put the letters in there. But he had that. I When I was at uh, Trinity, the guy that head, headed up my program said that he thought the best Christian education program in the country was at the Crystal Cathedral. And he had a doctorate in this. And he said... The glass cathedral is just all show window to get people in. He basically was saying what they do. I mean, they just they just have it all as a big show window to attract people, and then they've got an incredible Sunday school and teaching system inside of it. And and that's exactly what Hybels and Warren picked up. You got to have the show, and baby boomers. <laughs> want someone to come up and give them Christianity light, tell them how to be happy, how to be successful, how to feel fulfilled. And Jesus is the answer to that. The generation after the baby boomers, actually really the couple after them, have have rightly recognized the incredible self-absorbed condition of the baby boomer generation. That it's all about us. And But all they've done is actually gotten a little more sophisticated about it. Because now it's about what they want, which is to make a difference in this world. So all of a sudden you have church ministry coming along and saying all kinds of things about how uh, you know the gospel is the key to changing the society, to showing all these things. And, 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 and so, for instance, even though he would not be of the younger generations, he's older than me, you hear P- Tim Keller saying things like, until the unbeliever comes to appreciate that you care about the things they care about, they won't give you a hearing. So you need to craft the message in a way that actually matches the things that they care about. Now, in greater and lesser ways, I think those are the Corinthian problems. And that is that the message is being reframed in terms of the target audience instead of the giver of the message. Right? Because the message is that we're proclaiming what God told us to proclaim. We do not have any right to change that message. And we are changing it when we minimize things that we consider to be offensive to modern sensibilities like blood sacrifice, like substitutionary atonement. I mean, we're changing it when we pull those things out of the gospel message because we want to highlight other things that are more attractive because somehow we think it's going to give us persuasive advantage. And we'll come to a part of the reason why that's wrong in a moment. But it also, the second part of the unit that, that we're looking at, and, I, and the way I state it is, building with a message that compromises the gospel or accommodates man's pride. I mean, the very reason 
25, uh, verses 30, 26 through 31 tell us that God has chosen this offensive message is precisely because it humbles man in his pride. And, and so, if we actually are going to build our message around something that feeds the ego of lost people, we're, we're working contrary to the purposes of God. And, and we need to recognize that because at the core, at the core of the elevation of the individual to the center of all things, it is the outworking of our pride. Right? And, and I've quoted this in a few different places, so pardon me for the repetition if you remember it. But, but um, again, taking, say, like the, the, the Bill Hybels Willow Creek approach, right? When they are writing about their approach, lost people matter to God, which is very true. Right? But what they do is they, they turn and distort that into what they would call an anthropic principle and, and try to prove that because, and, and this is the summary of it, because uh, everything in the creation really seems designed to support human life. Right? Take the earth and move it a little bit away from the sun and we freeze, move it a little closer, we burn up. All of these things seem to be designed to sustain human life. Then they draw the conclusion after painting all that out over a period of time in the book and saying, so how else can you come to the conclusion other than we must really matter to God? And, and I know I could be bordering on nitpicking here, right? But it seems to me consistently when the, that when Scripture points to the glory of creation the conclusion actually runs a little bit differently, doesn't it? Like Psalm 8, it says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Right? I mean, it's, it's talking about the glory of the creation, and it says, what are we that you even take thought of us? We're so insignificant in light of all that you've made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. But all of a sudden, now at the center of it is us. And when I consider the works of your hands, wow, I must be really important. I really matter. You've done all this for me. Right? And, and that, that message distorts, I think, the point of what's going on. Right? Because... How do you move from that to uh, God is prepared to condemn you to an eternity in the lake of fire for defying his glory in the pursuit of your personal happiness? <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a hard hard bridge. That's why it doesn't come up a whole lot. right? It's not brought to bear much because... It is offensive to really talk about the necessity of, of atonement, blood atonement. That is the cost of life to atone for sin. And it humbles us. It's intended to humble us so that we will boast in nothing but the Lord, right? That no human being might boast in the presence of God. Then in chapter 2, I'd suggest he tackles a related but, but 
uh, but I think you can make a distinction, uh, and that is that another way in which we might build wood, hay, and stubble is to build in the power of human wisdom and eloquence instead, in the po- instead of in the power of the Spirit through the gospel of Christ crucified. That's what 2, 1 through 5 is tackling, right? He says, listen, I came to you, brothers. I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So your faith might not rest in the wisdom then, but in the power of God. Now, Clearly, we have to think carefully about what Paul's saying here. I think uh, Paul is not opposed, I think, to us being careful in our communication, trying to, to handle the text with excellence, to, to speak with excellence. I think he's talking, though, about a kind of strategic and methodological approach, which, which actually is, at the end of the day, leaves the messenger receiving credit. And your confidence in receiving it is because of the messenger rather than in the clear and powerful demonstration of the Spirit, which I take to be in conviction, not necessarily in signs and wonders, uh, because he's, he's talking about his speech and his message here. So, so here's, a, I think, uh, and again, and I'm trying to illustrate it in ways that would help you understand it. I mean, I, um, and I think it's faded a little bit, all right, but not completely. I think, again, it just shifts, right? But so, so there was a big push to sort of sideline preaching in order to use drama. And, and if you actually followed the arguments, you would hear people say things I think they actually didn't recognize. I mean, it, you know, it, it'd be like a, you know, they spoke better than they knew moment, right? But what they would say is that drama enables you to get behind their defenses, right? You can you can actually, uh, in essence, you can sort of sneak up on them with an aha moment because you're operating indirectly in the way that you're approaching them. And what they're effectively saying is, is that we're adopting a rhetorical strategy which will make us more effective. Right? They're actually putting their hope in communication theory and, and, and rhetorical strategy rather than clear and direct communication of the truth about an historical event the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. They, they are, they're trying to find ways to uh, circumvent the obstacles and objectives and depending on their wisdom and ability, right? Because it's, it's, it's their craftsmanship that's going to do that. It's going to be their effectiveness as, as communicators. Uh, as well, the tendency... And I think this is, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm using illustrations for more well-known evangelicals, but uh, it's because they're well-known. I mean, the fact is, uh, I could go back to my illustration about family. I mean, 
there are plenty of fundamentalist churches that have marketed, advertised themselves in their communities as a family church, right? So they're basically saying, you know, we're here for your family. You want to have a good family? Come to us, right? I mean, so it's a milder, uh, a milder version of it. The same thing is true at times when we have adopted strategies that we need to be impressive in our appearance. Right? We, we need to be, and I'm going to borrow one because it's just sitting, sitting there waiting for me. We need to be show window material. Right? You know, that, that analogy, hardly anyone window shops anymore. <laughs> but the, the point of it is, right, you put everything in the, in the show window to draw people in. Right? I guess a, a contemporary analogy might be like, you know, we need to be web banner attractive. Right. If, if when the moment they pop on your website, if it's not attractive and draws them in, they're never going to come in and actually hear your product. Right. And, and so there's that kind of an approach at times with with ministry. Right. We need to make certain that we look attractive. We have to have them like us before they'll listen to our message. So we want everything to look, look uh, uh, professional. We wanted to have all of the all of the the attractiveness, the best that we can do for them, so that people will be drawn to it. Now, again, just like with the speech, um, we have to walk carefully, right? I don't think there's any premium on on uh, looking bad, right? I don't think the goal is that we're supposed to give the most unattractive presentation of ourselves to people. Right? That wouldn't be the, the right conclusion. But when we're talking about motivations and, and what we're aiming to do, if we actually start to say the thing that will win people to Christ is not actually the message we have delivered in the power of the Spirit it's actually our personal winsomeness. Or it's the, the, the attractiveness of us that somehow does that. Right? And I think we have to be really careful about that. I mean, I think at times um, we, we uh, I think we, we actually walk away from what would be our legitimate hope of reaching lost people to embrace strategies that put us into the marketplace of competitors who actually have things that appeal to lost people. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, we, we, we hey, we're going to play the game that you're playing and see if we can get our market share, and, and we can't actually play that game because we're saying something to them which is, is resistant, uh, resisted in the human art. And that actually leads me into the third thing that Paul uh, or I, as I'm drawing out, right? If we want to build with wood, hay, and stubble, then I think we not only uh, uh, turn from the message that God's entrusted to us and the way in which we're supposed to communicate that message, but we also can do so by building on a faulty view of man's depravity. That's what verses 6 through 16 are confronting, right? They, uh, they... They are under-appreciating why a natural person rejects the gospel. 
and 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 that's that's the problem, right? I mean, verse 14 comes full clear. In that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. That is, in a sense, is a capstone of of Paul making the argument that we actually do have wisdom, right? Don't hear me saying, if I can sort of paraphrase what's going on, don't hear me saying that because we're rejecting man-made wisdom and, and human strategies, that we actually don't have wisdom at all. We actually do have wisdom, but it's wisdom that's come to us from God, which the rulers of this world reject. And in fact, the natural man can't get it. Because it's spiritually discerned. He's not saying we actually do embrace foolishness. Right? The cross is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. And so he gives them the theological understanding by the, of the fact that what we have is true wisdom, which has come to us from God through the Spirit, and, and the, the acceptance of that is dependent on the Spirit. And what you're doing, I think by implication, he's saying, is a taking an approach to ministry that is ignoring their depravity. You're assuming a receptivity that is not there. And again, I'll quote, right? Rick Warren in the Purpose Driven Church says, I think that anybody can be one to Christ if you find the right key to their heart. Right? So essentially, here's the mission of the church and the evangelist. The only thing keeping this lost person from being saved is you haven't found the key to their heart yet. So start searching through your keychain. Right? Because if you come to the right key, they're going to get saved. And so what that translates into is a kind of of target-centered approach that means they're now actually in the driver's seat as to how you frame the message. And in fact, it always starts that way, how you frame it. What it eventually becomes is the message. Right? Because if they haven't been won yet, you haven't found the right key yet, so keep, keep morphing it, keep switching it, keep turning it around. And, and what Paul would be saying to the Corinthians is, No. Now, the reason a person rejects the gospel is because they are not able, by virtue of their rebellion against the truth, right? They consider it to be foolish. Or like he has to come back in the second book of Corinthians and say, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to the minds of the unbelieving whom the God of this world has blinded. Right? So there's no problem with the message. The problem is not in the message. It actually is in the lost person. And the only way that will be counteracted is by this message and the work of the Spirit to give understanding. And so we can't start to change uh, fundamentally what God's called us to do because the world around us is manifesting its depravity. And that happened, I mean, you know, years ago on the front edge, and it's actually making its way in. It's like anything. And I've, I think I've said this before. I mean, it's like a, it's like ground game in a football, you know. So, so 25 years ago, 30 years ago, the, the first wave of feminist stuff started to come in. 
and you had uh, church growth people saying things about how if we don't take this into consideration, then then we're not only going to look outdated, we'll look immoral, right? So Doug Muran wrote, if 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 an un, if an unchurched person comes into your church and doesn't see women in leadership, they will not only think you're out of date, they will think you're immoral, right? So here's what they think. So we need to change for that. Right, and 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 so there's like that's the bold declaration 30 years ago, and and so in that same orbit, I've been criticizing. It's it's not, it's 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 not uncommon at all now to have female elders, female preachers, um, and I think because because the tide has turned, I think you're finding more and more people trying to find ways to do that. So even people who would say they can't be pastors. Are, are making sure they've got on their websites women who are ministry directors of some sort to make certain that people would see we've got women in leadership, right? Because if we can communicate that we're sort of not patriarchal and we're not, you know, set in the dark ages, then, then they'll be more receptive to us. We need to remove that. And you could take it, you could take it across the board on all kinds of things that are effectively saying, there's things that we need to change about who we are and what we're doing in order to gain us some persuasive advantage with them. And there is no persuasive advantage with dead people. Right? I mean, you cannot go down to Varan Funeral Home and you can change everything you want to do. That dead person is not going to hear you. Right? It's, it's the same thing that brings life. Always in spiritual conditions. Right? He, he brought us forth through his word, right? He, he gives us birth through the power of the gospel, and so we can't, we can't turn away from it. Another way, and I'll, I'll finish with this and just sort of really just sort of pass right by it in, in a way, all right, is if we build, we'll build with wood, hay, and stubble if we build with a divisive party spirit that improperly elevates man and pits groups against each other for self-centered purposes. That's what was going on at Corinth. Right? They were saying, I'm of Peter because they wanted to get their agenda. I'm of Apollos because they were pursuing their event, uh, agenda. And and I would suggest that this one is one we have to be careful. Yeah, I don't I want to call it the besetting sin. Uh, but I think at times separatists like I hope we all are sometimes sometimes can develop a toxic kind of voice which is intended to demonize in order to draw. Right? We, we, um, we can sometimes want to position our churches as the only place that's really truly serving God so that we can keep people from going to any other place. Or to try and pull people out of other places, and and I think that we have to be really careful that we don't have the functional equivalent of that. And I've and I've said this for years now in classes that if if that's the way you approach your your preaching and teaching ministry, don't be surprised when that turns against you, right? Because there are some people you can't out separate. And if you draw them by being the person who who separates more than everybody else, at some point 
when you don't go as far as they want to go, they're going to think you're a compromiser. Right? So I think we have to preach truth. We have to, I think, be willing to name the. I mean, this Sunday, I'm Lord willing, you know, Paul, Paul names Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't think there's anything wrong with marking off those. In fact, I think the qualifications for pastoral ministry require us not just to teach sound doctrine, but to refute those who contradict and to silence their mouths, Paul says in Titus. And in fact, I think that's what Paul's telling Timothy in 1 Timothy. He's saying, I've given you this command in accordance with the prophecies about you. In essence, he's saying, this is wrapped up in what your job is. (laughs) Fight the good fight. I'm not in any way trying to minimize the fact that we have to be militant for the truth of God. But we need to guard our hearts that we don't become party people, right, that, that are partisan in a way that is intended to advantage ourselves. We want to create a niche for ourselves. That's why I think the local church is always the best thing to do. Uh, parachurch ministries have an inherent conflict of interest because they they're actually have to exist by constantly foaming conflict. Whereas pastors and churches can't thrive if that's all they exist for. Right? They, they, they actually have uh, other things that they need to do. So, so it brings balance into it, and we need to guard ourselves in our church about allowing uh, that kind of a spirit to come in that we create in people a kind of disposition that is inherently divisive. Uh, because that's not actually standing for the truth. Right? It isn't. It's actually making too much of people, and and not enough of the Lord Himself in that regard. So, so be careful about that growth that comes from tearing down others. I think is dangerous growth. Right, and 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 we need to be cautious about that, so that we have at the end of the day, I mean the like big day. Uh, when the Lord assesses our work, it meets his approval. Because it really practically is a terrible shame to spend your whole life uh, and, and all, all of it is burned up. I mean, you know, you, you might be the, you know, you, I'm, obviously I don't have a problem with speaking at conferences, but you know, you could be extraordinarily popular in this ministerial world and have your ministry amount to very little in God's eyes. Because at the end of it, and, I'm, and I'm, I've been taking shots all over, right? Someone said the other day, you know, uh, God used Billy Graham to save him. And, and I said, true, but the reality is God used his word to save that person. the end of the day, it's his word. Because, and I'm not saying this about Billy Graham, there have been pastors who've seen people come to Christ who end up as apostates. So God, God used people who eventually showed that they actually didn't even believe the thing that they were preaching. Because the power is in the word. Right? And we are just too prone to elevate humans and instruments 
And we need to realize that, that what matters most for all of us is one day we're going to give an account of ourselves to Jesus Christ. And what people thought about you before that really won't matter. Not that we should want people to hate us or not like us. But at the end of the day, if everybody applauds me and celebrates me as I lie in my casket, and at the Bema, it all goes up in smoke. That's a bad trade. A really bad trade. It ought to be based on what matters most to me is the great day. And so I want to build in a way that, that the word is honored and it has lasting value in God's eyes. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be faithful to you. There are many temptations in this world, and not just uh, the world that we sometimes think about outside of the church, even the pressing in of it on your people, and the tendency sometimes for us to, to, uh, to be novel, to, to want to try and find ways to get things done that depend a little too much on our ingenuity. Help us to be faithful. Sometimes said to worry about the depth of our ministry and, and leave the breadth of it to you. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful and, and uh, help us to have our eye on the day when we see our Savior and, and uh, offer up our service as a sacrifice Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.